worship. Father, Lord, we just love you and adore you. Lord, we welcome you in this place tonight. Father, Lord, there have been many needs that we have brought before this congregation this morning. Lord, there are still folks that are battling sicknesses. Lord, that have job situations and pending. Lord, we continue to pray for Brother Stan, God, who's battling some issues with his back. That's where he and Sister Brenda are. Lord, we continue to pray for Sister Jennifer's parents. Lord, uh, they still don't know what's causing the nauseousness, the weakness, and the confusion. Lord, but we pray that you bring about healing and restitution to that as well and give us answers for that lord there are probably many inside of this auditorium tonight that have things in their heart that are heavy but lord they're in this house of worship and so lord we're asking that you would just meet the needs of the people of god 
Lord, everything that we do this evening, whether it's in a song, a word, or deed, Lord, let it be for the upbuilding of your kingdom. We will forever give you the praise and glory that's due your name. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. In the body of Christ together, said amen. Amen. You, know, you take this time to greet those around you in the Lord. God bless you. to worship tonight we're going to sing some praise choruses unto the lord and uh, let's just worship today for there's a feeling in the air that god is everywhere and his resurrection power is moving in this hour that jesus might be there's a feeling in the air there's a feeling in the air God is everywhere and his resurrection power is moving in this hour that Jesus might be glory. I will glory, I will glorify the name of the Lord. I will glorify his name. Oh, and his resurrection power is moving in this hour that Jesus might be glory. There's a there's a feeling in the air that God is everywhere and His resurrection power is moving in this hour that Jesus might be born. There's a feeling, oh, there's a feeling in the air that God is everywhere and His resurrection power is moving in this hour that Jesus might be 
Thank you, Lord. Father, Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the atoning, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. We thank you that we have salvation because of faith in Jesus Christ and only through Him, the Son of God, begotten of the Father. Father, as we get ready this week to celebrate with family and friends the idea of thanksgiving, Lord, I pray that, Lord, while we may stuff ourselves with turkey and dressing or ham or sweet potatoes, but, Lord, I pray at the end of the day, God, we would find some point in that day or in this week to set aside some time and thank you, not only for the provision of the food we're eating, but, Lord, for all that you provide. Lord, from the clothes we wear, the house we live in, the cars we drive, the jobs we have, There are so many people in this world that have far less than what we have. So we're blessed. We're a blessed people. We're a blessed church. We're a blessed community. We're a blessed, as the song says, going out, coming in, in the city, in the fields. Lord, we are blessed as the people of God. Fathers, we get ready to segue tonight, Lord, into the time of hearing from your word I pray tonight God that you would speak to our hearts but you would speak to us directly let the words that are said not be my words but your words that would be challenging maybe chastising maybe even God convict the wayward heart but ultimately at the end of the day let it be a word that resonates within the hearts of the believers and Lord we will forever and eternally give you the praise and the glory and the honor that is due your name in Christ Jesus Our Lord, we pray, the body of Christ together said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord momentarily. If you have your Bibles, you can go to me to the book of 2 Samuel, Mm. chapter 16. 2 Samuel, chapter number 16. I pray that you've all had a good afternoon today. I know that many of you probably tried to get naps in today or get some rest in today and Sunday, seems like Sunday afternoons, the naps just feel better. I don't know why it's on Sundays, but Sundays, naps just seem to be more enjoyable. I don't, I don't know what that is, but most people would rather take a nap on Sunday than they would any other day. Just, and then they don't want to get up from those naps for some reason. To all those that are tuning in online, we welcome them to church. I know some had to stream tonight online due to some other... Uh, prior obligations and so we welcome them to church as well we're still on Sunday nights continuing our vision and mission for the 2022-2023 church year reach disciple pray on Sunday morning we've been talking about assignments but on Sunday night we've been going through a, a series called gratitude not attitude we talked about that we need more people to express gratitude than their attitudes in the world that we live in today 
anybody can give you a good attitude. It doesn't take hard. That's not hard to do. But being grateful, having a grateful attitude is a lot harder, especially when we live in a society that tells us that we are owed things and there are certain, you know, things that we are entitled to have. When in reality, we're not entitled to anything except that which God gives us. The reality of it is it all belongs to God. Always has. And so we're going to continue with that. So 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse number 1. If you could stand for the reading of God's Word, I ask you to do so. If you can't, I understand. But if you're able, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. We're going to read only four verses of Scripture and go to prayer. And we'll let you be seated again. Now when David had gone on a little beyond the summit, or in some translations we'll talk about make a hill or a, or a place of rest, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a team of saddled donkeys, and on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a jug of wine. And he said, the king said unto Ziba, why have you, why? Do you have these? And Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and the summer fruits are for the young men to eat, and the wine is for whomever is weary in the wilderness and needs something to drink. Then the king said, Where is your master, son? Talking about Mephibosheth. Where is, where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba answered to him, Behold, he stayed in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will be restored to the kingdom of my father, to me. So David said to Ziba, Behold, everything that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself, for I bow before you. May I forever find favor in your sight, my Lord and my King. Let's pray together. Father, to the best of my ability, let me share the word of God to the people of God. Help me to decree and declare only what thus saith the word of the Lord. Father, I pray you would take, Lord, a coal from the altars of heaven, anoint these lips of clay. You would let the words that are spoken, Lord, go out, and let us not be hearers just of the word, but doers thereof. Likewise, let it resonate in the heart, whether it's challenge, chastise, convict, or change one's life. Let it do the job and the task it was sent to do and to accomplish. Father, I pray that you would not let us just be hearers, but doers of everything that is said or done. And we will be forever eternally grateful to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. The body of Christ said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. I started a series or a sermon thought last week. Don't forget where you come from or where you came from. We started out in 2 Samuel chapter number 9, and we read through verse 1 through 7, and in 2 Samuel chapter number 9, we are faced with a story. I painted you a picture of David standing over the bow of the palace valence and over the, the bow of the, if you will, the, the porch or the portico of his palace and looking out at the flickering lights of the city of Jerusalem and the candles burning throughout the homes and looking at the stars above, and I painted a picture with you last week about how David was probably standing there and he was thinking to himself, I didn't deserve to be here. I told you he probably reminisced about his fight with Goliath, the giant from Gath, and his slingshot experience. 
I talked to you a little bit about David's experience working for Saul and how the king would 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 be vexed with evil spirits, but when the spirits would come upon him, they would have David go in and play uh, his his psalms of worship or songs of praise, and and it would calm the spirit of the king. But the king got mad one day and threw a javelin at him, and then. Jonathan and David had this kindred friendship, and Jonathan said, look, my dad's mad, flee for your life, and they came up with a plan about shooting arrows, that if the arrows got shot, and Jonathan told the servant that the arrows are beyond him, that meant David needed to keep running, and if the arrows were close by, that meant David could come back, and we know the whole story of how all of that you know, transpired in, in the story, and yet in all of that that took place, we realize that... David was not royalty. David did not have royal lineage. In fact, the kingdom of Saul should have went to Jonathan. But you know the story. Jonathan and David get killed in battle. Uh, you know, Saul is worried about the, the work of the Philistines and all of these different things. And he goes to a, a witch, if you will, or a sorcerer in the town of Endor. And he summons the spirit of Samuel out from the grave and and, you know, there's debates about if that's really, you know, if people can really summon that, you know, whether you believe in that or not, between you and the Lord. But something transpired, whether you call it a hologram, whether you it's the real spirit of Samuel. All we know is whoever came up said, tomorrow, but you're going to die. And lo and behold, the next day, Jonathan and Saul ended up dying. Well, we know the story. David becomes king. David has went on military conquest, journeys. He has he has went and defeated the Amalekites and the Jebusites and the Philistines. He's went through all the lands conquering. And he finally kind of gets a little bit, if you will, of rest from his triumphs, from his journeys. He has finally gotten to a place where he's kind of like, all right, maybe I can rest. And so as he's standing there reminiscing over over all of his life's journey and where he's in this palace that he didn't deserve and how he's now a king when he used to be a shepherd boy in the backside of a desert and and all that story, David comes up with a plan. Because he's thankful for what God's done, he says, and we picked, this is where we picked up last week, he says to some of his servants, is there anybody left in Saul's family? Anybody? That I can show kindness, I can show gratitude, I can show appreciation to. Is there anybody that is connected? And, and you know, the story they said, well, Saul had a grandson, it was Jonathan's son, his name was Mephibosheth, and when the enemy was coming in, the nurse tried to pick the baby up, and the baby was about two years old, and pick him up in a hurry, and they took off running, but she tripped and fell, and she dropped the baby, and the baby ended up breaking both of his legs, and so now it's lame, it has a limp, and he can't really walk, and, and you know, they didn't have modern medicines like they do today to set it and to fix it, I mean, it was just what it was, and, and, and they said he's now living down in Lodabar. We talked about Lodabar as a place of, of desertous area. We talked about how David and, if you will, uh, uh, Mephibosheth had swapped places. David had went from desert living and pauper lifestyle and wander, uh, wilderness wanderings to now being a king. And Mephibosheth went from being a prince living in the palace to now becoming a pauper living in the desert and how their roles kind of switched roles and they, they reversed course and, and, and so... Mephibosheth and Lodabar is thinking, I used to live in the palace. I used to have all this money. I used to have all these 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 uh, uh, amenities, if you will, of food and rations. And I, I used to be blessed. Now I'm having to beg for food and I'm having to depend on my friends. And I have nothing. I'm, I am crippled. I am homeless. I am all alone. And 
And so he thought about life from where he came from to where he is now. David was thinking about where he came from to where he is now. And the, and the picture I painted last week at the end was, don't forget where you come from. Not everybody is born into money. But not everybody that's born into money is going to have money when this thing's all said and done either. Because you can be born with a silver spoon, but if you don't know Jesus, you're going to be dirt poor when you go to heaven. And when you go to eternity, because you won't go to heaven. You cannot have a dime to your name when you die from this life. You can be dirt poor. They, you might be so poor your family is having a GoFundMe page to pay for your funeral services. But if you know Jesus, you're a millionaire as soon as you step across that Jordan River. You may not have been able to afford Shelley at Dow Murray or, or, or Otto Russell in town. You may have had to borrow or have to depend on friends. You may not have had much here, but if you know Jesus, you have a lot waiting over there. Now, you can be rich as all get out on this side of heaven, but if you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ and you put it in anything else but Jesus, your money's going to die the same day you do. Somebody else is going to spend it and you are going to be miserable in eternity. The reality of it is, Jesus said it like this. He said, it is easier, it is harder for a rich man to enter heaven. It is easier for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle. Meaning it is almost virtually impossible for a camel to do that. And what Jesus was saying is that not rich people don't go to heaven. He's saying but most rich people depend on their money rather than on God. And their God becomes their money. That's why it's hard for them to go because they can't let it go so that God can have his way in their life. Now, if you come become a multimillionaire or billionaire and you decide to love Jesus, uh, don't forget to send your tithes that we talked about this morning to this local church, 10%. Uh, 10% of a million dollars will do a lot on our campus. So if you become a millionaire, even if you don't want to love Jesus, if you think good charitable organization work will make you feel better, we are a good soil to put that in. But the reality of it is I've seen countless people that, that have become famous or that they have you know, athletes or people that have, uh, if you will, actors and different things like that that have been very successful. And if you go back and read their history, they were not silver spoon babies. They, a lot of those people worked hard. They made their way. They don't, their families lived in low-income housing. Their families lived in trailer parks. Their families didn't have money, yet they're millionaires and they're billionaires. And people, but they didn't start out that way. And there's a lot of people in this world, they need to not forget where they've come from. Just because, I made the analogy last week, just because you become multimillionaire and you become filthy rich, don't forget you were raised in Hugie. Come on, somebody. It's good preaching even if you are from Huger. You know what I'm talking about. Come on. Hugger, Huger. If you, if you, ever, if you ever run into somebody and they say, oh, for y'all from that Hugger or Huger community, you know they ain't from around these parts of town. They can't read, you know. That R is silent. It's huge. There's no R. It's just there to look pretty on the sign. That's what it's there for. You know, you can become rich and famous, but if you're from Cordsville, you wear it like a badge of courage. You let people know, I'm from 402 from the Swamplands. I mean, you let those people know that you, that literally your air conditioner always smells like catfish. That's the way it's supposed to be. You wear it like a badge of honor. You don't forget where you come from. Because what often happens, not only physically, but a lot of times in our spiritual journey, what often happens is we feel like we've arrived and we forget where God really brought us from. 
we all might sit in church tonight in suits and ties and nice dress shirts and dress pants and nice clothes. And some of you may have clothes that are more expensive than my budget that I have a month. Or some of you may drive cars that are more expensive than my house payment. And that's great. And to God be the glory for all of you that God's blessed you with. But don't forget there was a day that God had to find you because you were a sinner. And that God had to bring you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because at the end of the day, everything that we have, and remember the concept was it's gratitude, not an attitude. Everything we have, as we discussed this morning, does not belong to me. It belongs to God. My, my 2013 Honda Pilot that has 290,000 miles on it, and my father-in-law keeps telling me I should start looking for a new car. I'd say, but this is an anointed car. It's going to be okay. I prayed over this car. I put oil on the engine of this this thing. I, you know, this thing going to go to... 400,000 miles. He said, do you think so? I said, I don't know, but we're going to fast and believe God's going to make that work because I don't want to have another car payment down the road. But the reality of it is, while I may have had the monies to buy it and to pay it and I not have a loan on it right now and it's mine, oh mine, yes, it's mine and I have the title in hand, if I didn't have the abilities to work and the abilities to make money, there wouldn't be a car. So it really still belongs to God because God gave me the ability to be able to do that. But if he didn't let me be equipped to work and have a good job and, and to do things over my course of my lifetime, then it wouldn't be mine. I wouldn't have it. So it still traces all the way back to it really was all God all along. The house that I live in, the clothes that I wear, the clothes and the car that Brianna drives, and, and, and you as well. You may not look at it that way, but everything we have, it came from God. It came from God. Now, in our spiritual journey, people get places in life where they all of a sudden feel like they've arrived. Let me tell you something. There, there is no super spiritual advanced status where if you get to a certain level, you stop and you don't have to go any further. You can always continue to grow in your faith, always continue to get something out of this word, always keep praying. You can you say, well, Pastor, I, I pray every day. Well, you know what? You can have a better prayer life. Well, Pastor, you don't know what my prayer life's like. No, but I can tell you, you're not Jesus, so you can still get better. And we all have things that we're working. The old song says, he's still working on me to make me what ought to be. It took him a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be because he's still working on me. If he can make an entire thousand of thousands and billions of miles of galaxies at the snap of a finger and at the snap of his hand you better believe that there are things in my life he still needs to prune and fix I am nowhere arrived I will not be perfect until I walk on streets of gold and past gates of pearl let me tell you we better not forget where we've come from we were headed to hell we were destined to hell we were destined to eternal damnation but Jesus in his love and mercy sent his only begotten son of the father full of grace and truth while we still yet were in sin Christ came and he died for us and he became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen the glory the glory of the one and only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth and when I knelt down at an altar and said Lord I am a sinner in need of a Savior he said about time boy I've been waiting on you and he saved me and he took a black heart and put red blood and made it white as snow that now I'm not a pauper I'm not enslaved to my sin but I am a prince of heaven and going to live with God one day in heaven I'm going there I'm going there but I can't forget what got me there too because I may stand before you today in a different role than maybe it was years ago but I wouldn't be here today had it not been for Jesus beating me down there 
some of you that teach Sunday school or teach classes or maybe you don't teach, maybe you used to teach or maybe you retired from teaching or maybe maybe you did other things in the church. Don't you ever forget that there was a point you had to come here. Whether it's at this physical altar, at your house, at your bedroom, at a revival, wherever your metaphorical altar, excuse me, took place, there came a point in time you and God had to have a moment. Don't forget what it was like when you and God had that moment because had it not been for Him. The old songwriter said, had it not been for the Lord on my side, tell me where would I be? Oh, where would I be? Some of us in this building better be thankful to God Almighty and have an attitude of gratitude. We better be thankful. God, thank you. You found me before my life got any worse than it was because had it not been for many of us in this building, had it not been for God on our side, there is no telling where we'd be today. There's no telling where we'd be today. And so... I shared with you last week that you do not let, you don't empower position to become greater than your posture. We were talking about David and how David first learned how to be a psalmist and a worshiper before he got the position and the notoriety to be king. Well, tonight I read to you out of 2 Samuel chapter number, excuse me, chapter number 9, or excuse me, chapter number 16, verses 1 through 4, talking about Ziba. And you think, well, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Because I want you to know you cannot allow the allure of prestige to cultivate a life of pretension. Let me tell you what that word pretension means. It is a claim or an assertion of something that belongs to or someone. And it is used in a word to impress. It is like the idea of laying claim to something that does not belong to you originally. So we cannot allow prestige, the idea of arriving or being on this higher plane or higher side. We cannot allow the glittering lights, the shiny bulbs of life, the idea of being something in the eyes of people to cultivate a life where we feel like we are owed something by God that didn't belong to us. So you say, well, Pastor, what does that have to do with what you read today? Because I want to finish this story. We'll finish the third part next week, but I want to continue this journey with David. David has ministered to Mephibosheth. He's allowed him to sit. At his table, the Bible said he promised Mephibosheth that if you trust me, I'll keep feeding you, son. You won't ever have to beg for bread again. He brought him up from Lodabar. He didn't bring him down. In fact, you never went down. You always went up. You went up from Lodabar. He brought him up to Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem is one of the most unique cities in all the world. In any direction you leave Jerusalem, you never, from Jerusalem, if you're in any city surrounding Jerusalem, you never go down to Jerusalem. You have to go up to Jerusalem. And if you leave Jerusalem, no matter which direction you go, you're always going down from Jerusalem. So when David made the kingdom of God in Jerusalem and said it, and Jesus talked about it being a symbolic of, of the kingdom, what David was really saying is, when we put God at the center of it, we always need to be looking up and not worried about what's going down. What's going down? Jerusalem, everything, everything around Jerusalem is going up to Jerusalem. Nowhere in Scripture will you say they went down to Jerusalem. You hear things like this. Jesus left Jerusalem and went down to Jericho. David went down to Lodabar. You hear that they went down to Nineveh. Jonah went down to Nineveh. They went down to Damascus. They went down. But every time you see the disciples, Mary and Joseph, were headed up to Jerusalem. The disciples and Jesus were headed up to Jerusalem from Capernaum. They were always going up when they went to Jerusalem. It's one of those unique cities that everything around it is in an upward. You have to go up to Jerusalem. 
That's why I believe in what the Scripture says, that we as the body of Christ have to believe the Scriptures of God when Jesus said, don't look what's going on around you, don't look down, but look up, for that's when your redemption draweth nigh. Don't worry about all the stuff that's going down beneath you and underneath you, but your help comes. I will lift up, up my eyes from which forth my help comes. My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Lift up your head, all ye gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord. Strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head, all ye gates be lifted up, your everlasting doors, for the King of glory shall come in. Everything we do must not be worried. The devil wants to bring you down to hell, down in your transgressions, down into depression, down into oppression, down, down, down. But Jesus said, look up, for that's when your redemption draweth nigh. God did not call me to worry about all the stuff going around me and trying to pull me down, but God wants to lift me up. The old song said, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land, a higher place that I have found. Lift me up, Lord, onto higher ground. You got to bring me up, Lord. David is now he has had his triumph. He has promised Mephibosheth food. But before we get to Second Samuel chapter sixteen. Between 2 Samuel chapter 9 and chapter 16, some things have happened in David's life he didn't see coming. One of those is his kingdom being taken from him. In fact, David, life was great. He thought he was done raging wars for a while. He thought he was going to be resting. One of his sons, named Absalom, kind of got this rebellious spirit in him. And Absalom thought, why can't I be king? Who does my daddy think he is? He's better than me. I mean, come on. And slowly he began with this conspiracy plot, undermining David's kingdom, slowly going around whispering the different things. And so Absalom would sit at the city gate. As soon as people would come into the city gate, they would come to be bringing their problems to David. And Absalom said, well, don't bother the king. Let me see if I can help you. And everybody thought, oh, what a nice young man. Absalom had long, beautiful hair. He had a very striking resemblance. He was strong. He, the Bible talks about how, how beautiful. He, he just was a beautiful man. Everybody thought he was looked the part of a king. And he would listen to their cases, and Absalom would pat him on the shoulder. He'd say, well, you know, I really, you know, it's really the king's call, but now if I were king, I, you know what? I'd take your side, David, every time. If I was king, David, you'd be right every time. Well, what would David do? David would leave, and David would be like, I like that guy. I didn't even talk to the king, but I'm telling you what, that guy, he's always on my side. But let's say Brother David's aunt was with Brother Larry. Well, Brother David leaves, he goes on about, he goes back to Ashley and the kids at home. He said, listen, I talked to I talked to the prince today at the, in town. He said, vice president, he said, if he was president, he's got this under control. I'm voting for that man next time it comes around. I mean, that man's got it. Well, what he didn't know, Absalom would wait, and when Brother Larry would come, Absalom would hear his case, and he'd say, you know, pastor, or vice president, or Prince, he'd say, you know, there's a man named David Harley. And you know what? I mean, that man, he's a, he's a crooked man. And he, Brother Larry would go on his thing. You know what Absalom would do? You know, Larry, if I was king, you know what? I'd, I'd rule on your favor. You know, you're right, Larry. You're absolutely right. You know what? You, you know what? I wish I could help you. You know, but you're right. So you know what Brother Larry did? He went home to Sister Jennifer and said, look, I'm going to tell you right now. I don't know who this new guy is running for president, but I'm going to vote for that guy. That guy said, I'm, I'm golden. 
See, what Absalom was doing, he slowly was picking off the kingdom one by one. He was, he was making the people's ears be attentive to him, taking the eyes off of David or the eyes off of the royal palace and putting them on him, the allure of prestige. The kingdom did not belong to David. I mean, did not belong to Absalom. Absalom was never anointed to be king. David was. Not Absalom. David. But Absalom, that word pretension, to lay claim or to, to feel like you're owed or entitled to something. Absalom thought being king sounds pretty good. It may not be what I was supposed to be. But you know what? There's a couple of my brothers that are ahead of me in line. But who says I can't be it now? And he caused a rebellion, a revolt. And what happened was, after he got enough, he said, I want you all to meet me on the outskirts of town in this city outside of Jerusalem. And you meet me there. And when you meet me there, you guys, I need one of you that's the, basically a priest running in the, the royal priesthood. I want you to anoint me and declare that I'm king. Let me stop right here and take a 30-second praise break. It has nothing to necessarily do with the message, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. Be careful about anointing things that were not called to be anointed. There are too many people in this world right now following people, evangelists, preachers, teachers, whatever you want to call them, apostles, prophets, whatever, they're following them because they have some special anointing. You better be careful because not everything that classifies themselves as anointed was anointed by God. They may have been anointed, but it wasn't by God. And the reality of it is Absalom was getting ready to be anointed, but it wasn't God that was anointing him. And they take him out there, and you know the story, Absalom, they started saying, Absalom's king, Absalom's king. Well, the word got back to David in Jerusalem, and he became faint of heart. And they said, Absalom's got a band. He's got a third, basically, David, of your kingdom. They're headed to Jerusalem to overtake you. David freaks out. He doesn't know what to do. So he runs. Praise break number two. Still has nothing to do with the sermon, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Do not ever leave where God called you until God tells you to leave. Don't ever bail before God gives you the A-OK to do it. Because you can run, Jonah, but you'll eventually figure out running is not the best solution. Don't run. It's like the old hat, you can run, but you can't hide. I'm sure don't Jonah figured that out pretty quickly. The reality of it is you don't move, just like the children of Israel with the cloud by day and the fire by night, you don't move till God says it's time to go. Because if you try to get ahead of God, it's going to cause you more heartache and more problems and more pain down the road than if you'd have just stayed put and waited on God. Isn't David the same one when Goliath was out there? You know, I remember we talked about David remembering and, and, and don't forget where he came from. In this moment, David forgot where he came from. You say, how do you figure that, preacher? Because David was the one when he showed up with all the cheese, the wine, and the bread for his brothers. They're all hiding in fear. And this nine-and-a-half-foot freak of nature, Goliath, comes across this field. Everybody else says, you can't beat him. And David said, why not? David, you're a little runt, man. You're only like a 16-year-old boy. Are you stupid? You're going to get yourself killed, son. Don't do something dumb. David said, why not? And they're like, no. King Saul's like, David, you can't do this. And he tries to put his armor on and protect him. David said, I can't do this. I'm not used to this kind of armor. And David, by faith, went out there and had a great victory. David, one man, thousands of military men around him, one man steps up and says, I'll take him on. And he won. David had seen God's miraculous hand. But yet his own flesh and blood terrified him. He forgot about Goliath. 
He forgot about chasing the Philistines down to the brook and killing them. He forgot about the Saul has slain his thousands, but David's his tens of thousands. He had forgotten all of the victories. He was scared of his own child. Now, I will say to you, there's a lot of people in the world today, they're scared of their own children today. Not physically in terms of they think that their child's going to overtake them and kill them and whatever, not some kind of ID channel series. But go watch them when they have a tantrum at Walmart. They're scared to correct their child because they're scared of what their child's going to do. Oh, well, I felt the convicting spirit in my heart right then. I just felt the, the air just gone. Wow, every good bit of preaching I've done is over now. They're terrified. You see little Johnny, like, I want a toy, I want a toy, I want a toy, I want a toy, I want a toy. Mom's like, I'm not giving you a toy. Little Johnny's screaming and hollering. Mom's like, shh, shh. Finally, Mom's like, okay, just take, just take the toy and shut your mouth. So you know what she just did? She's afraid of Johnny. She's afraid of what Johnny's going to do to embarrass her, so she caves because she's afraid of Johnny. Spare the rod. That was a good writer, even though I didn't write that. I sure wish I would have been the guy that wrote that. The reality of it is, David's running from his own child. Forgot about all his past victories. You know what happens? David takes off. He takes his wives and some of his children. But he didn't want to leave the palace unattended, so he left behind a few of his wives that he had been given from other countries with treaties and alliances and some of his concubines. Remember what I said to you just a few minutes ago. When you try to outrun God and you get ahead of God, you'll end up wishing to God you hadn't have done it because it's going to cost you more heartache and, and pain than you originally signed up for because you outran God. David takes off running and he goes in hiding. Absalom shows up to the palace. He says, where's my dad? They said, he took off running. He's in the wilderness. I'm going after him. They said, don't do that. David is skilled in the wilderness. He's a, you're going to get yourself killed, son. Don't do that. We used to serve your dad. We don't want to see you get killed, sir. You're going to get killed if you do that. So Absalom shows up to the palace. He finds that his dad had left behind some wives and concubines. And for the sake of time and the audience, the only thing there are the James that Absalom knew he was so enraged that he couldn't get his hands on his dad. Couldn't finish the job. That prestige still was driving him. That he wanted stuff. That pretension. He wanted something that didn't belong to him. The only thing he knew to do was to defile his daddy's, desecrate his daddy's house. The only thing that was more, if you will, uh, uh, debilitating in that time period was for a man to take advantage of someone's wife or spouse. It was promised to him. And Absalom went in and had relations with every one of them in front of the town on top of a roof and made sure everybody in town watched him basically defile his daddy's house. What Absalom was really saying with that act, it wasn't a, a gratification act. Absalom wanted everybody to know that he detested the things his father stood for. His father stood for righteousness. His father stood for right living. And Absalom wanted everybody in that town to know, I detest the house that I've lived in. Can I tell you, people don't always want to live righteously. And they sure don't like it when you try to tell them to live righteously too. David hears about it, breaks his heart. Ziba, same guy we just talked about, comes riding onto the scene. Brings some horses, donkeys, food. In 2 Samuel chapter number 16. David's distressed. 
downcast. He thinks everybody's turned his back on him. But he sees Ziba coming, and immediately David's first thoughts are, oh, he's bringing me a report about Mephibosheth. We left him behind. What, what, oh, how's Mephibosheth doing? And when he gets there, he says, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you here? Where's Mephibosheth? Because Ziba's responsibility, the last thing David told Ziba was, you take care of the field, the house, you make sure Absalom, I mean, you make sure Mephibosheth never misses anything for the rest of his life. What are you doing here? Ziba says, oh, old king lived forever. He just knew how to play the ego. He said, Mephibosheth, (laughs) he found out that you had bailed. He said, Praise God. This is my lucky day. I couldn't have drew this up better myself. He's going to stay behind in Jerusalem. And he's going to get the kingdom of his father back along with Absalom. Absalom's going to help him get it restored. I mean, he's not with you anymore, sir. He's bailed on you. David was already beaten down, depressed, downtrodden. And David makes a decision based on the circumstance rather than facts. Let me caution you and give you caution. And be cautious when I say this. Don't ever make a permanent decision on a temporary circumstance. Because you may make a decision that you'll end up regretting the decision you made because that was not the decision you should have made. Only You only made it because where your emotions were at that moment in time. I've often said to parents and people that I've talked to over the years that have come to my office, I've had parental issues with their children and frustrated children, I said, don't you ever... Allow your anger to make you regret what you do down the road. Don't you make a decision in anger and fits of rage and then have to go back into that room and have to be like, boy, I screwed this up. More often than not, abuse cases and things like that happen when someone got so frustrated and enraged, they beat the child, they did something, and then they literally back and say, well, I didn't mean to. It doesn't matter then. It's already been done. And our anger gets the best of us. It happens not just with children. It happens in jobs. You know, your boss man gets up you, asks you to do something. You don't like what he says. You storm in his office and say, I've been working in this company for 20 years. I'm not doing that. And he says, okay, be careful what you say. But like, I have never worked with no bosses more sorry than you are. This, that, and the other. And he says, you're fired. And you're like, fine, I wouldn't work for you. I quit anyway. Before you fire me, I'm quitting anyway. I'm not working for this sorry company. And you slam the door and you get in the car and you get about three feet down the road. And you thought, oh, God, i got to tell my wife that. I just quit my job. You go walk back into that office and you're like, oh, sir, I'm really so sorry. I, I, you know, I was mad at you because of what you asked me to do. Didn't really mean it that way. And if you got a merciful, Jesus-loving boss, he may or may not be merciful. But most bosses, you know what they're going to say? I don't care. I'm sorry. You made your choice. You, walk, you made your choice. I'm sorry. You said, well, I didn't mean it. It doesn't matter. If you meant it, you said it. And I took it. Face value. David, in his temporary circumstance, looks at Ziba and says, you know what? After all I've done for Mephibosheth, I've, I risked my life for him. I protected him. I brought him into my... After all I've done for that man, this is how he repays me. You know what? Every bit of land he owns, all the food he owns, all the stuff, just, just keep it. You know what? I don't even want... You know what, Ziba? You can just have it. And Ziba... <laughs> Oh, you got to love Ziba. Ziba doesn't even try to even tell the truth. He, he doesn't even try to tell the truth. At this point, he thinks to himself, man, that lie worked out real well. 
I've often said this phrase, sin will take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and leave you in places longer than you intended to stay. The reality of the fact is this. In, in order to keep a good lie going, you know what you have to have? A better one. Because <laughs> you've got to cover up the one you just told. And eventually, if you run out of lies, guess what comes out? Truth. <laughs> and then you're really in trouble. Because now you got all that stuff behind you. you got to figure out, one, people are not going to trust you. But I mean, it gets kind of muddy and murky down the road. Zippadaddy, <laughs> he thought, wow, I said that Ms. Fibosheth's getting his kingdom back. <laughs> David said, okay, I can have all the stuff. Ziba thought, it's my lucky day. And he goes, oh, king, I bow before you. I prostrate myself. I bow before you. Oh, king, live forever. You are a righteous man. You are a good man. You're the best in town. I am so sorry to tell you, but king, oh, king, live forever. If I can ever be of service, pastor, just I'll do whatever you have. Anytime somebody comes with that much praise and accolades, back up. They got a knife. They coming for you. <laughs> All the people that tell me how horrible the sermons are, those people I like. They're critical, and they're, but they help me to iron sharpens iron. I like those people. Not that I like what they always have to say, but at least I know they're not going to kill me behind my back. I'm going to see the bullet coming when they shoot it because they said it right then. I'd rather see the bullet rather than feel the bullet. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh, that's they, they come. Hey, that was the worst sermon I ever heard you preach. Well, thank you. Maybe we'll get better next week. Who knows? But at least I know where they stand. They didn't try to hide it. They told me right then it was horrible. It's the people, though, that you have to watch that everything you do, you're the best thing ever. It happens in all places all the time. Oh, oh, yeah. Pat, there's a lot of people that will hug you like this, embrace you, envelop you, and have you close to them. And in their hand, they're waiting just to go inside of you. They're just waiting. Oh, they say all the right things. They do all the right banter. They get on Facebook and write the nice posts. You are the best ever. I'm so thankful for my little fluffy friend, Toto, who's, you know, they, you know, whatever. And they, they write these, but all, but they're behind your back. They're talking about you. Can I just preach for a second and just give me a few more minutes? Um, I know that we don't have all of them here and that's, you know, fine and dandy, but maybe, you know, the word will get out. If you don't believe this stuff works, go to high school. God help me. You see, teenagers have this innate ability to be two-faced and be good at it. They're amazing. It's impressive. Sometimes I can't even tell if they're telling the truth or not. I'm like, man, that's pretty good. They're best friends. Oh, hey, hey, Brother Larry, how you doing? Hey, Jim. Hey, hey, Storm. Hey, Jeff. Hey, brother. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Storm walks out the locker room. That's a sorry football player. That's a pathetic son of God. I mean, he thinks he's good at football. God, who have He's just the coach's favorite. Why'd they put him on the football team? Yes, he looks like the side of a Mack truck, but he can't drive it. So what does it matter? It's like, it's like, a, it's like a clumsy bear running through the forest. Like, what is it good to see on the football team? He comes back in. Storm, you're the best linebacker ever. Storm, there ain't never been a linebacker that's more burnt, that epitomizes what it means to be a stag than you, Storm. Storm, you are the best linebacker. He walks out. That's a, that's a doe. That ain't a stag. That ain't even a real deer. People do it all the time. I've sat there. I coach basketball. I hear it all the time in locker rooms. They don't think I'm listening, but I hear People will say stuff and make you feel like you're the best ever, but when you're not there, they're waiting to take you out. Ziba said, oh, king... Yes, live forever. But Mephibosheth wasn't in rebellion. 
He was abandoned. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week, but Mephibosheth never did turn his back on David. In fact, he summoned Ziba to go get the horses so that he could go with him to David, and Ziba left without him. Ziba calculated it. He planned it. It was a calculated measure of deception. The devil is phenomenal at deceiving people. And I would, I hate to say it this way because it's almost depressing to have to say this, but he's good at even deceiving the church. It's almost, it's very hurt. I mean, it's really a, a tough thing to even process, but it ain't just the world he's good at deceiving. He can confuse church people too really well. Ziba had, Ziba had lived in the palace. He had the prophets of God preaching to him at Sunday services. He had served under David. He had been exposed to the gospel. Just because somebody is exposed to the gospel, goes to church and hears the gospel, doesn't mean everybody responds to the gospel the same way. Just because you go to church and you hear the preacher preach or you hear them sing, doesn't mean you're saved. You have to make a decision for yourself. Lots of people go to church. Lots of people don't go to heaven, though. Wide is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. You know how many thousands of people probably gathered around auditoriums this weekend to go to church, whether it was on Saturday, Friday, Sunday, two, three, four, three. Thousands of, you know how many thousands of people went to church today? And if God blew the trumpet right now, you know how many of those thousands may not go? <laughs> A lot. They went. They heard the same gospel message that everybody else in the building did, but they didn't make a decision for Jesus Christ. And even in the Christian faith, and even in the journey that we are on, sometimes the allure of being a pastor's favorite or the allure of being prestigious or being a bigger pastor, a bigger church, a mega church, a TV preacher, the allure of prestige oftentimes it will cultivate a life of pretension. It happens in good gospel preachers all the time. Your favorite television preacher, he didn't start out that way. He probably preached in some little small church somewhere to get his feet wet, had a daddy or mama that prayed him through, and he felt the call of God. But over time, enough people, Brother James said, Joel, you're a good speaker, son. Your daddy John is an excellent, but Joel, you could be just like your daddy. And Joel thought, you know what? John Holstein was a good preacher, but maybe I can be. Joel, you're the best. Joel, you're the best. Joel, you're the best. And Joel said, you know what? I can do this. And now at the largest church in corporate America, we now have Lakewood Church. And I can't tell you the last time I've heard Joel ever talk about sin a day in his life. Ever. If that's your favorite preacher, I'm so sorry. I just butchered him for you. Never. Thousands of people. A full former basketball arena of thousands of people. And yet none of them seem to know what sin is. Shocking. Most television preachers and big time preachers, they didn't start out that way. They just kept getting told they were the best, they were the best, they were the best, whatever. And what happened is it created a culture of them thinking, you know, maybe I could be somebody special. And over time it cultivated a life of pretension. The call, yes, it goes without repentance. But the call was never to make a profit. The call was to share the gospel. And people have traded what their calling was, and that was to reach lost souls. They still mask it. Oh, well, we need you to send you $100 in the mail to us, to our ministry, to reach the world. That's great. And that's good. 
But if you're not careful, you'll be sowing into their Bentleys, to their Ferraris, and to their three or four houses and buying a brand new ring for their wife that's about $16,000 and their private jet fuel for them to get around the world. Oh, they're saving the masses, but they're also living really good too at the same time. Prestige. David had lost, it seems like in this moment, he had lost it all. His son has overthrown him. He's taken over the kingdom. David's a vagabond. Even his own, if you will, adopted son, his act of kindness. Can I tell you, and then Miss Carol, as you come, I, there'll be times in your life that you'll do the right thing for people, but they won't respond the way you anticipated it. You don't do the right thing with an expectation that it's going, you're going to get something back. You do it because it's the right thing to do. What happens is, David in his mind thinks, I took you in, Mephibosheth. I... I covered you in my wings. I covered you in my feathers. I protected you because I was best friends with your dad. I took you in. And this is how you repay me. If you're not careful, the devil will make you think that everybody has turned their back on you when that's not the truth. But he'll paint you a picture that nobody else cares where you are. The devil's really good saying, well, that pastor didn't call you this week. He don't love you. You know, he called you for three weeks in a row, but this particular week, he didn't call you and find out how you were doing this week. So he must he's he's found somebody else to pour his time in. Don't listen to that lie. Sometimes things happen. But the devil will use things. and He'll twist them just like he did with David in his mind to make you think, everybody's, t- my son's turned on me. Some of you in here may say, hey, pastor, I've got family that's turned on me. Maybe you have. We all do. I got people right now that are in my family. They could care less if I... Well, I would say they would care if I drop dead. They're probably not sending a flower and they may not come, but, you know, unless the food's good, then they might show up. But outside of that, it's okay. We, You have some in your family. You're the oddball or they're the oddball and you, neither one of y'all are right. I mean, I, everybody has family. Some that turned their back on you. David's like, my son's against me. I ain't talked to him. Even my adopted kids, the people that I took in, the people that I tried to protect, they turned on me. Then Brother James, he starts making decisions off of his temporary circumstance. Oh yeah, he had defeated Goliath, but because he's afraid of his son, now he's just giving everything away. And Just take it, just take it. He's depressed. He's, you know why? Because the devil knew how to play in his mind. And if we're not careful, the devil will do the same to us. Life will be great for a season of time, but then all hell will come against us and we'll forget about all of the past victories God brought us through. We'll forget all about where God has brought us from. We'll forget all about the blessings God has given us over the years. We'll forget it all. And in that moment, based on that circumstance, we'll be ready to throw in the towel, quit on God, quit on our ministry, quit on our family, quit going to church, quit doing all these things because it all fell apart. We cannot forget where we came from because... If God brought us out of those things, He'll bring us out of this one too. If God can help me defeat Goliath, He can help me defeat the next enemy and the next enemy. And the, if God's done it before, He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. If God did it before, He can do it again and again and again. Mephibosheth never did say, but Ziba's wickedness, and we'll talk about it, what, how it played out, Ziba never tried to make it right. Without ruining next week's message, I want to just leave you with this to give you hope for this week. But just because your temporary circumstances look bleak doesn't mean God's not already working out something that you can't see down the road. 
David didn't stay in isolation. He eventually got back to the throne. And we'll talk about that. It's not forever. It's just temporary. Don't let what's temporarily in front of you affect what the future promises is. God's already said rightfully belong to you as a child of God. So don't get distracted by the enemy. Don't let him play mind games with you. But you tell that devil, and he comes knocking at your door, rearing up his ugly little head. You say, you can say anything you want to, but the word of God is full of promises God said that I'm entitled to by being a child of God. And you pray them, you speak them, you claim them, and you live on what thus saith the word of God. Because if you're here tonight, that means God brought you from something. And you're, if you're saved tonight, then that means God brought you from a life of sin. So every one of us, if you're in here and you're saved tonight, every one of us know where we were when God found us so God can still keep us and take us to the next place He wants us to go. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Heavenly Father, to the best of my ability, I've shared your word to your people. God, as we get ready to leave this place for this week, to celebrate Thanksgiving. Help us to cultivate the life of gratitude and not display our attitudes. Don't let us be allure, be, 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 have the allure of prestige and allow it to cultivate a life of pretension where we think we are owed something. Or we're, we are entitled to something. God, as we go to prepare for our Thanksgiving festivities, Let us find time this week to say, God, thank you for all you've done for me. Father, may you bless us and keep us. May you make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. Lift up your countenance towards us and give us the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding. Guard our hearts until you come again. Father, let the words of our mouths and meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength our Redeemer. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. The body of Christ together said amen. Amen. Let me just remind you before Brother Randy prays our benedictory prayer that services this week are on Tuesday, not Wednesday, Tuesday, so that you can have Wednesday to get prepared for all of that. 7 p.m. in the main auditorium. There'll be some worship. There'll be some uh, time of testimonies. There'll be some times of scripture. It's going to be one hour to the dot outside of the moving of the Holy Spirit at 7.59. We're going to be praying, and at 8 o'clock, I'm flipping lights off. Not legitimately, but we want you to be able to get home and get to your family and do what you need to do, especially if you have travel arrangements. And then the following Wednesday, November 30th, anybody that's willing to help, we're going to be decorating, getting our stuff together for the Christmas parade and, and using that time as a night of fellowship together. We're going to just come together. We're going to do some work around the building, just getting things ready for that as well. If you're a part of leadership, don't forget leadership training coming up uh, on the 3rd. We also have our Christmas church Christmas party on the 4th of December at 6 p.m. And also don't forget to mark your calendars for our 5 p.m. Christmas Eve and our 11 a.m. Christmas Day. One hour service. We're going to celebrate the life of Jesus. But we're also not going to keep you all day. We're going to let you go, you know, eat fruitcake cookies or whatever you eat. I don't even know who even invented that. They're horrible. But if you like those, God bless you. If you like fruitcake cookies, eat mine. But if you have anything else different, call me up. We'll talk. Let me say to you, I love you. I'm praying for you. I'm going to ask Brother Randy to uh, stand and lead us in our benedictory prayer. Immediately following that, you're free to be dismissed. God bless you.
name. We love you. Amen.